I can't be more excited than I am today. We're going to be welcoming Dr. Victor Montori to the show today. Dr. Montori is an author of a book called Why We Revolt, A Patient Revolution for Careful and Kind Care. This is Pain Refrain. Well, welcome back to another edition of Pain Reframed. Don Burke, the former administrator of Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, said that it speaks honestly and knowledgeably about the faults of industrial medicine. Montori, a doctor, citizen, and poet, has produced a wonderful and meaningful book that deserves widespread attention. I can't agree more with that. He is truly a voice that is calling each and every one of us that are in this industrialized system to rise up, revolt, and make it better for the care of our patients. Today, it is truly our honor to bring on Dr. Victor Montori, author of Why We Revolt, to the podcast today. And before we get started, uh, Dr. Montori, would you mind telling the listeners just a brief background of where you're coming from and a little bit about you? Sure. Uh, first, thank you very much for having me. I'm Victor. I am a physician originally from uh, Peru in South America. I've been in the U.S. Uh, since 1996. I am a uh, physician endocrinologist uh, that participates in the care of people with diabetes at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I'm also a researcher, leader research group that investigates ways in which we can make care more patient-centered. More recently, I co-founded an organization called the Patient Revolution, which is an organization, nonprofit focused on advancing careful and kind care uh, for all. And uh, so a result of that work, I published uh, last year a book called Why We Revolt, which is sort of the manifesto for that organization. Well, I must say when I heard you speak, I think it was in September in Colorado, multidisciplinary conference of uh, probably 500 individuals. and you brought at least half the audience to tears with your storytelling and your ability to really put to the spotlight what many providers and unfortunately the vast majority of patients are feeling when it comes to how they enter this, maybe we'll call it sickness system. Would you mind telling the listeners a bit about how you came to this this understanding of just you know where we're at in healthcare arena and started speaking out about it? I, I don't know, frankly. I think that one finds oneself at a position where you must do something. I feel that that at some point, perhaps it was the fact that I was able to compare my experiences of growing up as a physician in Peru at the time of terrorism and hyperinflation and severe corruption and poverty, and then come to the United States and find that the same problems of limited access to unhurried consultations was happening here despite the obvious differences in access to resources and, and the general wealth of the uh, healthcare system here, that contrast got me thinking that perhaps the limitations of care in both systems are the result of uh, a final common pathway in which the origin in Peru was the general poverty of the system and corruption, stealing resources from it. And in the United States, we must look for another explanation, and perhaps here the explanation is greed. 
that might be one one thing that, that the ability to make that contrast, having experienced both systems and recognizing that, at least in the case of a country like the uh, United States, the possibility that people could profit while pricing other people out of the care that they need was profoundly unfair and, and obscene and immoral. It also could be that I'm raising three boys and I'm worried about their future, but also worried about the fact that I would have to respond to their complaints about whether whether I did enough, whether I, I, I used my voice, whether I stepped up to the challenge when I was living through these incredible days that we're living through now. So I perhaps reflected that I had nothing to show for the fact that I I have all this education and I have this opportunity, I have these experiences, and yet was I using my voice to be a witness to this and bear witness to the, the things that we're going through and advocate for something better, perhaps something better for them or, or for their children. So maybe I, it, was all, <laughs> it was all based on guilt. But no, I don't have a straightforward answer to the question. I just find myself in this situation and, and, and feeling very strongly that I have to speak up about you know, what our patients need and the, the kinds of uh, careful and kind care that are necessary. Well, it's so, you know, interesting that across all the domains of folks in healthcare, you know, your message resonates. And what particularly struck me was this, you know, what holds the glue, I think, and have you mentioned is this idea of, you know, care and that at the essence of what we do and what most of us came into the professions for were to actually care for those that we're fortunate enough to serve. And yet, we now have a system that disincentivizes that and literally is making the healthcare providers as sick as our patients. Yeah, I think that is an observation that I have found compelling, which is the notion that whatever system that we have now seems to be hurting both the patients and the clinicians. The patients by particularly patients with chronic conditions becoming overwhelmed by the demands that healthcare places on them. And, and then when those demands are not met by the way healthcare responds, which is by labeling people in a fairly cruel way as non-compliant, but also the effect that it has on the frontline folks who find themselves equally overwhelmed, both in terms of the actual tasks that are expected to be completed, but also taxed on their emotional well-being, such that we have increasing evidence of burnout, of callousness, of a loss of empathy, and for some clinicians, the possibility of abandoning the practice or even hurting themselves or hurting their families. What kind of system focused on health will make its workforce unhealthy while being cruel to people coming in for help? You have to then come to the conclusion that this is a system that itself is must be motivated by something other than the well-being of uh, of its employees, of its workforce, and of the people that it's intended to serve. It must have stopped caring. And as a result, I think we arrive at the conclusion that it has corrupted its mission and it has become about something else. And I think in the case of the United States, I think it's the healthcare industry has clearly become about its industrial goals, about its business objectives, where care becomes the means by which it achieves those objectives, not the end that it pursues. You know, well stated, Victor. And I think, you know, in our podcast, we talk a lot about, we entered it 
because we were talking about pain and just how horrible we are as a society and healthcare system and managing pain and that we're constantly uh, doing things to people, you know, injecting them, putting metal into their bodies, putting high cost procedures and into these folks. And we're, we're no better off. In fact, we're worse off than we were the decade before. That's how we kind of entered the podcast. And, you know, what has quickly become made aware to us is what you are saying that we, we're, we're just one element and we're seeing one symptom of what you've just described, you know, in this sickness system. What was really so powerful to me is your ability to tell stories. And I think that stories bind us. And would you mind sharing maybe a story of elderly patient that is getting a lot of health care? And what does that currently look like in terms of health? Yeah. So one of the uh, stories I usually tell, and I've been doing this now for a few years. So uh, my hope is that everyone will eventually hear her story. It's the story of Maria Luisa. And Maria Luisa is a uh, Peruvian elderly woman who lived in uh, Anchorage, Alaska with her son and her two granddaughters. She lived with multiple chronic conditions. She had to go in for dialysis uh, three times a week. Because of those chronic conditions, she had a number of limitations in relation to her diet, which for a Peruvian, it's a very severe limitation because we derive enormous pleasure and satisfaction from our food. She lived in a fairly isolated existence given that she didn't speak English. And so she was restricting her social interactions to her immediate family there in Anchorage and the people she could call on the phone back in Lima, Peru. I tell this story because um, her granddaughter used to work with us. She spent two years with us. When she went to visit her grandmother in Anchorage, she started sending back pictures to me of what she was observing there. And the first picture she sent me was a, a picture that I start my presentations with that shows Maria Luisa at the kitchen table at her home, just looking down on a box that is filled with pills. And uh, it's very clear that she has an abundance of health care, I'm going to use the industrial term, delivered to her by some provider of that care. And yet, when I ask audiences to describe Maria Luisa's face, her expression, the feelings that she's conveying through her eyes, nobody ever has described her as healthy. So she has this abundant, this intensive healthcare intervention on her, multiple tablets, multiple pills, and arguably she's living independently, even though she is elderly. So I'm sure in some database she is considered a success of that system. And yet anyone with eyes to see, looking at the same picture, no one would actually look at her and say she's healthy. Starting from the story, we, we could then join Anna on her journey to find health within all that health care for her grandmother. And Anna does a few interesting things. She mobilizes some resources to get an elevator so that uh, Maria Luisa can go from the second floor to the first floor and, and vice versa with more confidence. She was very afraid of going down the stairs by, him, by herself and perhaps falling. So that gave her some mobility and uh, kept her from being a prisoner of the second floor when her family left the day for work or study. Anna also explored the possibility of moving her grandmother's dialysis to the afternoon, 
because she found that after the morning of dialysis, her grandmother would be completely tired and wiped out. And as a result, she was living a part-time existence where three times a week she was all, she was out. By moving it to the afternoon, she was hoping that the mornings would become a possibility for her grandmother to explore other activities like crocheting, which she loved to do. Turned out that was the case, but also she got lucky because in the afternoons there were two dialysis nurses that spoke Spanish and Maria Luisa's uh, world expanded socially and her ability to connect with other people. But the uh, real genius of Anna was to pick up all the instructions about diet restrictions that Maria Luisa had accumulated and convey those to a dietitian in Peru who then formulated typical Peruvian dishes with wonderful Peruvian flavors and send those recipes back to Anchorage, where Anna found somebody who could come in on Sundays and cook for the week for Maria Luisa with those flavors that will connect Maria Luisa with her, with her home country, allowing her to have that wonderful food without having to cheat, get in trouble, and find herself perhaps with an, with an unnecessary hospitalization or an avoidable hospitalization. I finish usually my presentations by showing a picture of Maria Luisa, well enough to travel back to Peru for the last time, well enough to be sitting at a restaurant in front of what appears to be an enormous whole fish that uh, appears to be deep fried. What's most remarkable is not the expression on the poor fish, but what's most remarkable is the expression of Maria Luisa. She has no longer that overwhelmed, sad, and hopeless look that we encounter in the first picture, but she is smiling, you can see the twinkle in her eyes, and according to Anna, that expression is the expression that uh, she remembers most of her grandmother, who happened to be a fun-loving person who was uh, filled with a quick wit and a uh, incredible humor. In other words, we find Maria Luisa in a position of health, something that Anna would, could make happen for her grandmother, which gives us hope because Anna is, a, is now a physician and, and she could do this for her patients, she could do this for her grandmother. But it also, for that, that to happen, it required that Anna loved her grandmother. Anna appreciated her grandmother's real nature, appreciated her current circumstances and notice that things have to change. That ability to notice so that you can care is one of the things that industrial healthcare appears unable to afford. And as a result, we don't notice people, we miss people, and the care that we give people piles up, overwhelms, and fails to advance people's situation. Powerful, Victor. And I think that there's so many elements as you were talking there that we as professionals connect to that idea of you know, again, we went into care. We went into to love the profession because it was interacting with others and the time pressures and the computer monitors, the barriers to that connection have just grown immensely. The thing that resonated with me when you spoke was that really she was considered a success if she was, you know, she was living independently. And the data may have said that this is successful, her current state prior to you know, Anna 
intervening. I'm interested in some of the research you're doing. Uh, is your team looking at markers of true health? And are you guys involved in some research there that looks more at what really means to be healthy in our society? Not in the definition of health or in outcomes of health, but really trying to figure out ways in which clinicians, well, first of all, we want to get to the point where we don't accept the status quo as the context in which we must care for people. We want to get to the point where we change that context. We fundamentally make it easier to notice people and to care for them. So this is an important point because it's interesting how often I find myself in the situation of having to argue with people that tell me that it is not possible to change the system as is, to have to argue with them about the fact that it is true, that that it's very, very hard to care for people within the system as is. And then I tell them that I've given up on the system as is. And then I find, of course, I find people that have been able to do amazing things within the system. So the work that we do is really trying to figure out ways in which we can perhaps not make things work today for the people that are here today and needing that care today. So to that extent, it's a bit less practical and perhaps unfair to the people that are suffering now. It's more focused on, can we come up with, can we help people imagine an alternative future? Can we give people an opportunity to think about ways in which care could be different and then make that so palpable and so obvious that they can begin to work towards it? So, for instance, we've been, for the last 15 years, we've been working on a series of projects where we create conversations between patients and clinicians where those conversations do not exist, perhaps around issues of prevention, uh, perhaps around issues of uh, choosing different kinds of treatments, surgeries versus pills. And in doing that work, uncovering for folks what happens when patients and clinicians are able to to create those conversations and to notice what's going on and to appreciate where each other is coming from. And in doing that work, allow people to reimagine what what is possible when, when you actually care for folks. We've been doing work on preparing patients or future patients living in in the community on how they might come prepared to ask difficult questions to consultations in situations where they have felt perhaps that it was hard to do or embarrassing. We have found it very helpful to prepare patients to ask those questions. And I'll give you a quick example to sort of make this come alive a little bit. We had a patient in one of our workshops, which we organized in the public library, who was delaying cardiac surgery. And the reason he was delaying cardiac surgery is fairly easy to understand. He was afraid. He was afraid that uh, the surgery would not go well. He didn't have a way of thinking or talking about that fear. When he was surrounded by his peers, he had a chance to uh, review or to discuss how those concerns would play out. And what he was telling his uh, peers in the public library was that the what he was mostly afraid was that when the surgeon opened his chest and was holding his heart in his hand whether there was a possibility that the surgeon would lose grip and, and the heart will jump off the hand of the surgeon and will be bouncing around the operating room like a frog. Something that, of course, does not happen, and it's uh, potentially ridiculous to imagine. 
but yet it indicated the fear and the imagination that was keeping this man away from the surgery. In a much more mundane example, there was a woman who came to her primary doctor and asked for a genetic, one of these genetic, you know, whole genome tests, you know, where they tell you, you know, what sort of ancestry you have and so forth, but they might tell you a few things about your health. And she asked her primary care doctor about those, getting one of those tests. And the primary care doctor just uh, dismissed her, indicating that those tests are fairly useless, which is, of course, quite essentially true. But in doing that, what he missed was the difficulties that this woman had in relation to uh, prevention, because she never met her father. And what she was really asking is, what should I be afraid of, concerned about in terms of my health, because I never met my father, and I wonder if these genetic tests might be helpful. That conversation never happened, of course, because uh, the patient only got a chance to discuss these genetic tests. In the workshop with her peers, she was able to reformulate her concerns and, and was able to discover a way of uh, talking about them that made it easier for her to then bring it to the attention of her clinician. So these are the kinds of things that we're trying to discover to, to demonstrate that these kinds of things are possible and the idea that once we, dis once we discover their possibility, the possibility that they can happen, uh, they become something that we can work towards having as a routine part of clinical care. Well, thanks so much for listening, everybody. We hope you're enjoying the show. If you're a PT or a physician or a chiropractor, an allied healthcare professional who really wants to dive into this stuff and increase your ability to come alongside folks who are dealing with persistent pain or are hoping that you can prevent folks from falling down into that trap, please check out International Spine and Pain Institute. They sponsor all of our podcasts and we sure do appreciate that. ISPinstitute.com is their website. They have a great six-month certification, numerous weekend courses, online courses, so truly a best in class resource to increase your skill set to work with what can be a very challenging but also a very rewarding population. Now, without further ado, back to the show. Dr. Montori, first, I really appreciate your voice in this space. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. Do you feel that the actual mechanisms of things changing will be driven primarily through patients understanding what it should look like, maybe versus trying to work on the system or even work on the providers? Is the concept that if patients realized how they could present themselves and how they could engage um, with the system, that them coming to the encounters with that much of a different mindset may overwhelm the ills of the system and begin to shape things in a different way going forward? I have major problems with that description, even though it may turn out to be true in some cases, because it once again puts the onus on the patients, the ones that we should be caring for and about, to overcome the limitations of the system rather than working on changing the system so that it can care for people rather than delegate increasingly difficult work. At the same time, we call what we do a patient revolution because we have lost a hope that clinicians, doctors, nurses, therapists will be leading uh, the fundamental change that's necessary. If they would, they would have already done so. I think patients will have to lead. And as a result, giving patients self-efficacy, as you were describing, the, the potential tools, techniques, training, and permission if they need to, which I don't think they do, but if they need to, to try to change the system, might be an important step toward changing it. So I'm a, as you can see, I'm a little ambivalent or a little, I'm holding two, two truths in tension here. On the one hand, I want the system to care for people. 
I don't want people to come to the system to do battle every time they come in for care or to come in on a defensive stance thinking that they're going to be harmed when they're coming in for care. I don't want people to come in worrying in that way. On the other hand, I can't imagine the system changing by itself. The people that are in the system right now, I don't know, I don't think have the ability to fundamentally change it because they have too much interest in the current system as is to keep it in place. And those who are suffering from it are leaving it. So I'm, I'm, I'm very ambivalent. I'm very um, conflicted. I think is the word that I'm looking for uh, about this. Patients on the one hand deserving our care and our attention and our compassion and our empathy and our action. And on the other hand, holding perhaps the keys to a system that might work for all of us. Very conflicted about that. Dr. Montori, do you see kind of a sweet spot in in the veteran status of, of the provider? Do, do you feel there, you know, perhaps is some point of no return when someone is too deep in the system? Do you find yourself with this message targeting maybe folks who are going through school or who are just coming out of school and trying to kind of shape their views along this new paradigm before they maybe get to that point? Yeah, so this is a very, uh, so I'm going to be a little bit of a pessimist on that on that side. One of the uh, fascinating stories of uh, 2018 was the announcement by uh, New York uh, University that their medical school will be tuition free. And their justification or their um, goal, they said, for making it tuition free was to form uh, more primary care, more generalist physicians in that medical school. The response from most experts was not very excited and paradoxically. And the reason they gave was that they thought that the majority of people who end up going to specialty care, to highly paid specialization and so forth, are people who are willing to spend more time in training for those specialties, as a result, likely to have less burden of debt, paradoxically. And so they spend a lot of time making that point and discussing that issue. I actually have a different perspective. And this was taught to me by a a friend of mine who told me the story of a policeman in a small town here in Minnesota. And this policeman was kind of an old-fashioned guy, you know, the kind of walk through the streets of this town without a gun and talking to people and uh, being a neighborhood policeman and, you know, like the guy that visited Mr. Rogers, right? And, and he was saying that the new recruits cannot do the job that he does. And the reason the new recruits cannot do the job that he does is because the new recruits sign up for the job interested in using the toys that the police force had been buying. You know, the military equipment, the SWAT cars, the the knife bulletproof vest, the big guns, you know, the tasers, and all these other things. So the kinds of kids that were signing up to the police force were fundamentally different than the kinds of kid this guy had been when he had joined the police force. He was a community kid who wanted to give back to his community and be a civic-minded folk that was connected with his neighbors. The guys that are joining the police force in his view now are attracted to the military, to the force, to the weaponry, to the power aspect of that relationship, of that role, not the relationship part of that role. So if you think, extrapolate that to healthcare, and you have a healthcare system that is 
elevating the possibility of making significant profit within the industrial environment, then the kinds of kids that would sign up to medical school will be attracted perhaps to the kinds of lives that they think are possible once you finish training. If I show up and talk about careful and kind care, they might wonder if I'm talking about a new campaign for marketing to attract more customers to their fancy looking clinics. When people talk about patient experience, they're thinking about the Apple store. And I've been told, I haven't confirmed this independently, but I've been told that half the class or close to half the class at Stanford of medical school students graduated did not sign up to go on into a residency program, which is necessary to practice as a physician. In other words, People are now pursuing the MD degree without any intention of ever taking care of patients, but because perhaps it's, it's a helpful degree to have if you're pursuing biotech or other aspects of the industry. So I, I don't know that I can have much of an impact educating people as they come out of medical school without at the same time fundamentally changing the healthcare system away from the industrial aspects of it and towards careful and kind care for all. So that is why I insist on the idea of fundamentally changing the system, because once the system is in place, it is the beacon that attracts uh, particular kinds of people into healthcare. And once we attract the wrong kinds of people into the front lines of care, patients can stop hoping that they will eventually get that careful and kind care that they're yearning for. Well, well stated, Dr. Montori. And as we come to a close, it's where you began when we brought you here. And I think if you look at those, I guess, that have been in the trenches long enough that I think it falls upon us to be the voice. And with this, we entered it in a different world where actually the patient was at the center. It had flaws, but it's nothing like it is right now. And it's really our, our call, if you will, that those that have been in here know what kind and careful care is like, that we need to be leading the charge. And as you said, it, it, it's not going to happen within the system. It requires those that are entering the system, hopefully, to get yes. kind and careful care. As we close, would you mind letting uh, the listeners know about your organization, where to find it on the, on the web, and plug your book one more time? Uh, thank you. Patientrevolution.org. And on that website, you can also uh, find at the top a link to Why We Revolt. This is the book, the manifesto of the, of the patient revolution. It's available where you can buy books or ebooks or even audiobook, which I uh, had the adventure of uh, recording. And there's also uh, something that helps us uh, quite a bit, which is the possibility within the same patientrevolution.org website to uh, order the book, which I will sign and send to you personally if, if that's something that you would want. And we are interested if people get a chance to review the book and want to do like a book club or something like that. We're interested in, in participating in those opportunities and maybe coming in through Skype or some other activity to try to help communities reflect on the ideas of the book and perhaps become activated and become enrolled in this important modern challenge. Some people go back to the 60s and yearn for the possibility of being able to be in a fight that is about something bigger than themselves. But that's the invitation, and I hope many of your listeners will take us up on it. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, uh, Dr. Matori. Victor, again, it was a pleasure to have you on, and uh, we wish you safe travels as you head out today. We will be shouting out this book and this call 
for this patient revolution. So thanks again for jumping on the show today. I appreciate the opportunity. All the best for you. Well, folks, if that conversation does not encapsulate what this podcast is all about, I'm not sure what could do a better job. That is a a voice of someone who has reflected on on the state of affairs and, like he said, decided that he was going to use his position, education, and purpose to make a change. And, and that is truly what it's all about. It's just huge thanks to Dr. Victor Montori. I can't can't tell him how, how much we appreciate the story and the time in, in the book and being able to share those resources with all of you. So that's really all I've got. I'm blown away by the conversation and I'm, I'm very thankful for it. So thank you all for being here. Please keep tracking us on ispinstitute.com where all of our science education lives. Keep tracking Tim and I on social media. Thanks for, again, the enormous growth in the Facebook page. So many of you are jumping in there and, and having great conversations and sharing patient success stories and talking talking about how you all are doing things differently. And again, the voice just keeps getting louder. So thank you, Dr. Montori, and thanks to all of you. Have an outstanding rest of your day. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.